Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 21 this morning. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses and prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word, and to his name be glory and praise. Amen. There was a heartbreaking story in the paper on Friday about Seki, a 23-year-old man from Somaliland whose parents, because of two decades of rebellion, had him arrested and jailed at 20 under a national law against disobedience. I'm a big fan of this law, as you can imagine. But his parents were desperate, having watched him wander purposelessly from vice to vice on two continents. They tried life in America, where Seki cared only about video games, drugs, and girls. Then they went back to Somalia, where he squandered opportunity after opportunity to change his life for the better. 
And as I read the article, I thought that the real tragedy of lives like his is the blindness to the destructive intent of the idols he's given himself over to. He talked a lot in the interview about freedom. Freedom is a good thing. But when we make it an idol, we will never have enough. He talked about pleasure and entertainment. Likewise, good things. But idols that claim to satisfy are themselves never satisfied with us. Isaiah has been comparing the idols of the ancient Near East with Yahweh. Really, God himself has been inviting the comparison because unlike idols who for the sake of their own glory seek to destroy, God is glorified in the grace of his salvation. We turn to idols when we lose sight of who God is. Seki hated the parents who got him through high school, enrolled him in community college, and provided him with a car to get there. He chafed under their demands to make something of his life, believing that idleness and pleasure had more to offer. His parents aren't blameless. But there's a helpful analogy here because we too are inclined to believe what idols tell us about the life they'll provide. We think of God as demanding and idols as freeing. And even when those idols take more and more from us and offer in return less and less, we can still fail to see the contrast between their intent to destroy and God's desire to give life. When life is difficult, it further clouds our vision. Isaiah acknowledges in verse 2 that we will pass through waters and rivers and fire. Trials and calamities come in many forms. And when they come, idols always claim to be the secure and satisfying way forward. What has happened to us, writes one author, is that we've lost our sense of God. And when we lose God, we don't just lose religion. We lose everything worth living for. But if you lose it all in pursuit of an idol, the idol doesn't care. It's not out for your good. Its demands won't let up. And if you defy your idols, they will try to make you pay. Cultural acceptance is an idol. It demands more and more moral compromise. It is never enough. Complete financial security is an idol. It demands just a few more years of dominating your priorities. But, finishing up that quote from before, when we have defied the one true God, what does he do? He saves us. You see, amid the tumult of life and the allure of idols, we sometimes lose sight of God. But he does not lose sight of us. This chapter begins with, but now. 
inviting us to glance back and remember the immediate context. If your Bible has section headings in bold, the previous one tells you all that you need to know. The ESV labels it Israel's failure to hear and see. God, unlike the idols, is working in the world. He's declaring the future and providing for the present. But his people are losing sight of him. They're chasing after idols. They're fearful about what's to come. They're struggling to see the way forward. That's the problem. Sound familiar? Thankfully, Isaiah doesn't waste any time getting to the solution. But now. Like how Paul uses it in Ephesians 2, 4. The but doesn't announce something of our doing, but of God's. What we're about to read is not a testament to Israel's dramatic repentance, but to God's dramatic grace. Have you ever had that embarrassing moment when you thought you were important to someone, but found out you weren't? This happens a lot with celebrities, happened to me one time, or politicians you once met at an event. It can sometimes happen with people that are closer to us because they're important to you. You assume that you are important to them. And sometimes that fantasy comes crashing down when face-to-face you find the person doesn't even know your name. Idols are deeply impersonal. There's no regard for you or your wellness. They don't give you a break when you need it, nor challenge you when that's what's best. You can give yourself over to them, but they will never give themselves back to you. Contrast that to God. Beginning in verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Yes, God will redeem the entire creation, making all things new. But that grand plan includes the specific detail of also redeeming you. Idols want to drag your life into purposelessness. When you have nothing else to live for, they have you right where they want you. God wants to give back purpose to lives that have lost it. Idols want to destroy and kill. They're not satisfied until you are completely subdued under their power, defined by your subservience to them. God wants to restore life and freedom. He wants you to be defined by his grace. He's so committed to this. Verses 3 and 4 say that he will move heaven and earth to accomplish it. Egypt, Cush, and Seba, those names are there to suggest that God will upend all of creation. He will write earth's history according to this purpose, that he will save his people. The Genevan pastor John Calvin said, no power will hinder God from saving his people. He loves us. He loves you. He formed you. He redeemed you. He calls you by name. You are his. 
This is what he says to his people. And the contrast to the message of idols couldn't be starker. This is why he made us to save us as testimonies to his glorious grace. And why would God do this? The answer is hard to believe. It's verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. This is how he can love us at all, sinners as we are, because our lives, redeemed by his grace, bring praise to that grace and are witnesses to his saving love and power. When our lives are defined by his grace, all the glory belongs to him. What idols can do to fallen humans isn't actually very impressive. Leading people who love sin and are slaves to sin into more sin doesn't take much. Destruction is easy. But creation, even recreation of that which was lost, who does that? Redemption, forgiving the sins of those who have sinned against you, who can do that? Reviving the dead and renewing their purpose to God be the glory, great things he has done. So Isaiah is not silent on how we should respond to what God has done. What does a life defined by God's grace look like? He offers three characteristics in these verses. We walk without fear, we declare his grace, and we look forward in faith. Fear not. That's the message of verse 1 and verses 2 through 5. And in the Bible, fear not rarely appears in isolation. It's nearly always in the context of something that would otherwise seem quite scary. And these two examples have both the spiritually scary and the physically scary. Verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Remember what that last section in Isaiah was labeled? Israel's failure to hear and see. Are you neglecting God's word? They were. Do you fail to pray as you ought? Do you trust the world's wisdom when you should be trusting God? Each of these failures to hear and see, and yes, they are failures, each needs addressing as you more and more take off the old self and put on the new. Nevertheless, to people who aren't reading their Bibles like they should and aren't praying like they should and aren't listening to the sermon like they should, God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, is an essential part of our salvation. This increase in holiness will happen as we walk with Christ in faith. But even sanctification does not save you. It cannot. Your walk with Christ, as important as it is, does not keep you in saving union with him. His walk with you is what saves. Fear not, 
for I have redeemed you. But it's not only our spiritual health we entrust to God, it's our physical well-being in scary times also. Yes, verse 2, you may pass through tumultuous waters. You may have to walk through the proverbial, proverbial fire. And when you do, he will be with you. You all know that I always encourage you and myself not to be pedantic or to give people a hard time over the specific words that they use to describe the faith. I'm going to break that rule here just to tell you how that footprints in the sand poster has always driven me crazy. (laughs) The idea is a sweet one, that Jesus is always walking with us and that when life is too much for our strength, he's willing to carry us for a spell. But sweet is not the same as accurate. Do you know how much of life is too much for my own strength? All of it except the sinning. I seem to have plenty of strength for that. When it comes to doing what's best for me, loving God and loving my neighbor, I need Jesus to carry me for all of that, not just some of it. And Isaiah tells us here, that's what he does. We need not be overwhelmed. We need not be burned. We need not be consumed. We need not fear. For God is with us. Fear takes a lot of different forms. So some of you may not think that fear is an issue for you. But fear is about more than just physical safety. We can fear rejection and so pretend to be something we're not. We can fear irrelevance and so always be chasing the next thing. We can fear abandonment and so push people away preemptively. We can fear embarrassment and so lash out in anger. What does it look like to have a life defined by God's grace? Isaiah says we walk without fear. Secondly, we declare his grace. Kids, I don't even know if schools do this anymore, but when many of us were young, we would occasionally have show and tell. We'd bring something from home that was important to us, a toy or a book or a picture or maybe a sports card, and we would explain why it mattered to us. In verses 8 and 9, Isaiah is imagining a kind of worldwide show and tell. God is there. And so are all the nations and all the peoples and all the idols of the world. And God shares what he's done in history, how he's redeemed a people for himself and brought new life to the dead. And then he offers or challenges everyone else there to show anything that they've done that even comes close. Only did you notice that God doesn't share the praises of his grace himself. He asks us to. He calls on those he saved to be his witnesses before the world. He saved us, he says, in part, so that we would declare his praise. That's verse 21. Nineteen times in just a few verses here, God uses a first-person pronoun. I, me, my. This is what God did. He saved us 
We belong to him. And he is right to want the world to know. Isn't this the best thing they could ever know? That there is a God who gives himself for sinners to save them from death? So then why do we act as though it's so difficult to be his witnesses? Are we ashamed of God or of what he's done in us? Are we more committed to what the world thinks of us than what God thinks of us? Professor Ray Ortland wrote that he once heard a friend say how in our world it's cool to search for God, but very uncool to find him. People around you will think it's neat if you're religious and are searching for truth and for God. Many of those same people won't be quite so accepting when you tell them that you've found truth and it's all in Christ. But this is God's purpose in us and in saving us. He will be glorified. His glory will be known among the nations. We're to tell people how it is we're able to walk without fear. We're to invite people into a life with the God who wants to build them up rather than tear them down like the idols do. We're to encourage people with the news of the strength God provides and of the bruised reed he does not break. Find your identity in his grace and give the people around you a reason to think that identity is worth having. Finally, we look forward in faith. In exile, Israel could have been tempted to think that her best days were behind her. Would it ever get better than the Exodus? Would God ever do anything as dramatic for them as when he parted the Red Sea? That's the language of verses 16 to 21. It's supposed to be reminiscent of Israel's exodus from Egypt. It's supposed to get that story swirling around in our minds. But Isaiah's point here is that God's power did not run out when the sea unparted with Israel on the other side. The exodus was never intended to be understood as only a one-time event, as the pinnacle of God's grace and power with his people. The exodus is a pattern to get us to understand how God will use his power and by grace save his people. Israel would go into exile again. That's who Isaiah is talking to here. The exiles. And by God's power and grace, she would once again be freed from captivity. Israel's remnant needs to understand that God's track record isn't for nostalgia. It's for the strengthening of trust and hope for the future. What about you? Are there ways that you're looking backwards? Believing that the best God has for you is in the past? Joy was for them but not for now and not within my grasp up ahead. Marriage has long lost its tenderness and that's just how things are going to be. 
the younger years with children, the fun of adulthood, the fulfillment of a past job, the peace of mind of simpler times. God promises us waters and rivers and fire and flame. Life will not be easy, and we will not always feel that our circumstances warrant hope. But God does not change. The same God who brought us these blessings in the past has the grace and the power to grant them to us again. And that's why Isaiah tells us not to live in the past, but to use it to look forward to the future with hope and trust. Christian, do not define yourself by the guilt of your sin. For God says, I have redeemed you. Do not define yourself by the demands of your idols. For God says, you are not theirs, you are mine. So how will you define yourself? What will you decide matters most about you? Is it what you do? Is it what you deserve? Or will it be whose you are?